Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. I'm Polly fucking Mwadi. And today we're going to dive into a film that has a lot of heart. It took a bunch of risks, but ultimately missed its mark. This is David Lynch's Dune. So, Dune is a movie directed by David Lynch, written by David Lynch, adapting not just a single novel, but almost trying to embody a, a series of books while covering the plot of a, a single novel by Frank Herbert of the same name. It was made in 1984, and it had a budget of $40 million, which in the 80s is a lot, a lot of money. And opening weekend, it made $6,025,091, and its worldwide gross was only $30,925,690. So it did not even make back its budget. When when I first pitched this to you, Paul, mm-hmm. I didn't fully understand the scope of what we were going to be dealing with. I'd never read the books before, neither did you, right? No, I haven't read the books. I'd never seen it, the movie. I All I knew was the very, very basics of the story, and I knew that for some reason people thought that this was... Um, Lindsay Ellis actually calls it the Lord of the Rings of science fiction. All right. She doesn't she doesn't say that. Now, it's taken a little bit out of context. She says it as a representation of what she interprets other people's view on it to be. All right. She doesn't say that. I don't think from personal opinion. She says that that's what seems to be the popular culture idea of what Dune is. Okay. So other people have called it the greatest science fiction series ever written. So after watching the movie, I decided that I was missing some things. Uh, And in order to properly talk about this, I needed to know what I was missing. So I listened to an audio book that was three hours long. It was a collection of excerpts from the entirety of the series read by Frank Herbert. And it was excerpts that he felt were some of the more important parts of the story. And I realized that it was even more than what I was going to be able to get to. I also knew that there is supposed to be another Dune movie being made by Denis Villeneuve. I don't know when it's coming out. Don't know much about it. But I'm, I'm going to propose that for this section, we talk about this movie. Um, I'll try to present the information I've garnered from other sources to make it make more sense without going into too much of what it was meant to be, quote-unquote, in the book. And by the time the next Dune comes out, when we make another episode on Dune like we talked about doing, we can talk about Villeneuve's representation and hopefully by then I'll have had time to <laughs> garner a better understanding of what this beast is. <laughs> yeah. I don't want people to come into this thinking that we're going to give them a comprehensive idea of what Dune is and and that we're both super experts on this because I know that I, who am sort of the lead person on this one, 
don't have a good grasp yet. So I I watched the whole movie and I fucking barely knew what it was about, man. That's that's kind of the uh, the biggest problem with the film in my mind is it tried to do and be so much more than it was capable of being. The thing with books, so I, I guess I should specify, the story of Dune, as written by Frank Herbert, takes place over a time period of 5,000 years and spans six full-length novels. Damn. <laughs> yeah. And David Lynch tried to take the body of one novel, the key sort of main story of the events, I guess, the rise of, of our main character, Paul Atreides, the, uh, how do they pronounce it? Wadip. Kizatz Haderach. Oh, that. In the movie, they call it the Kizatz, but I, I've heard it pronounced Kizatz in many other places by, like, people who are talking about the books and things. So I'm going to go with that as being the proper pronunciation. His sort of rise to becoming this messiah sort of figure but in telling that story there's so much information about the world and the characters and the organizations and and all of these things that you can't just gloss over because otherwise the story doesn't make sense yeah that's what i was thinking too while i was watching it i was like i feel like there's a lot more to this than what they're presenting and not reading the books just the way it started it kind of just throws you into it even after like 20 minutes i was like what the what is all this shit like i have no idea what's going on because they like they throw so much info dump in there too it's just all explanation like there's no showing what happened it just kind of starts with that princess or whatever who really had no point in the movie other than that initial little info dump that she gives and then uh even after that, it was just, it was so much information. It's like they were trying to give you too much at the same time. Yes. And now don't get me wrong. There's a lot to be said of good, good writing, not just telling you everything and leaving, leaving things to your own imagination. Like if you can present to somebody a world where they don't know everything and they're okay mm -hmm. because the story makes sense without it. The problem with the story that they're trying to tell in that way is that they, they you you can't you can't it it's too complicated to not give enough information but there's too much information to give in a right. single feature mm -hmm. film. I watched a few uh, interviews with with David Lynch where he talked about that. He he read the book said he loved the book and wanted to make a movie that was as faithful to the story as he could. And then it took them a year and a half of script work because they wrote it all out and it was just ungodly long. And they spent... <laughs> yeah. He didn't say how long it took them, but he, he said they spent a significant sum of the time on the script work just trying to find ways to make it shorter while still mm -hmm. including all the parts that were important to tell the story. And to me, it felt like that took over the entire movie to the point where it was no longer 
a film that was telling its own story. It was just a collection of ideas and plot points that were yeah. disconnected and jammed together because the focus was not on telling the story of the movie. It was on telling the story of the book without thinking about how it was going to translate into a final film. So what, what like for the movie, what point in the book series did it take place in? Was there any specific... The, the first book. Oh, okay. It took place in the first book. Yeah, it is the first book. This is the story of, of Dune, the first one. There are sequels like Dune Messiah and Dune, or Children of Dune, God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, Chapter House Dune. And then Brian Herbert, I believe is... Frank's son wrote Dune House Atreides, Dune House Harkonnen, Dune House Carino, Dune the Butlerian Jihad, Dune the Machine Crusade, Dune the Battle of Corin, The Road to Dune, Hunters of Dune, Shandworms of Dune, Paul of Dune, The Winds of Dune, Sisterhood of Dune, Mentats of Dune, Navigators of Dune, uh, Songs of Muad'Dib. It's, it's, in, in a way, that is, I think, the comparison, calling it the Lord of the Rings of science fiction, is that the world building is as intense as you would see in Lord of the Rings. The, sure, yeah. The I religious beliefs, the the organizations that they just create, the universe that they create, it's all self-contained and it's all constructed. They've created languages for these people. They've created mythos. They've created so many different things. And so in that way, I think it is very much a Lord of the Rings of sci-fi. It, and it's not a normal sci-fi either. It's not a science fiction about technology it's a science fiction that has a much more much more of its roots based in fantasy mm, mm-hmm. but it's told in the future you know yeah the idea is that they've given themselves to machines so that's one of the things that we kind of miss yeah. i think in the movie is that the power that paul has as a character as this prophesized messiah is that he is a man born with the power of the sisterhood of the Bene Gesserit, which are the like those ones with the, the Reverend voices. Mother, yeah, who have like the superpowers. He's born because the Lady Jessica, his mom, is supposed to be a member of the Bene Gesserit, but she doesn't look like it. She doesn't dress like it because she's a like an infiltrator. Okay, so <laughs> there's there's a whole another part that the movie doesn't perform very well, which is that the Bene Gesserit are actually secretly manipulating all of the politics of the universe to make their ends meet. So they're doing things in the background to control all of the different families to try and create this optimal outcome that they conceive with their future-seeing powers that they get from the Spice Melange, which is what's harvested on Dune. She was only supposed to have female children because of this prophecy of this Kizad's Haderach who would like supposed to be born a century later than he than Paul is because she chooses to have a son child who is trained in their ways but then he's also trained by his father to be a mentat which is not a candy although it sounds like a candy <laughs> But it's apparently a human computer that is supposed to, like, a human who's supposed to be able to make these insane computations and calculations and maths in milliseconds the way way a really high-powered computer would, but he's a human. And so that's kind of the world, is that people and machines have sort of 
tried to merge themselves in that way, and that's what's gotten people to this point. And he's a combination of both, which is what gives him his absolutely batshit crazy powers. But he's supposed to also be a controllable plant by the Bene Gesserit. And the, the myth of the Kizatz Haderach was actually fed to the Fremen by the Bene Gesserit as a lie to try and keep them under their, under their heel. But the movie just treats it as real. So it makes him a prophet or a messiah or a god figure when he's not really supposed to be. He's just a person. That was one of the things I really didn't like about the movie is that whole chosen one prophecy crap. Like, I hate that. Like, I hated it when they did it with freaking Anakin, too. I don't know. When it comes to stuff like that in movies, that's such an easy way out. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. Now, I, I with with Anakin, I, I at least appreciate that in the end, the prophecy turned out to be that he would balance the force by defeating the Jedi who were overpowered, which is not how you would normally expect that to go. So they did do something different there at least, but I, I do agree with you that it's it's very much overdone and it's just a, a tropey, quick, cheap way out. Yeah. And it's not supposed to be that way in, in, in Dune. It's it's a falsified prophecy as like a, a method of control. And it's meant to be a commentary, well... I can't say meant to or not, but it it kind of plays out as a commentary on religion and how religion has been in the past utilized as a tool to control peasants. Yeah, that makes total sense. I like that idea better in the book because it's supposed to be this lie that they're telling everybody, basically. Yeah, and the whole thing is, right? I mean, everybody's being lied to by them. Yeah. But unfortunately, the movie changed what the meaning of that was. And I mean, they like, I want to say that they had, they had a good reason to do that. It just like, I'm sure that everybody on this movie tried their best to produce a good movie. It just didn't come out that way. They were trying to present too much at the same time. And it may like, I have the utmost faith in Denis Villeneuve, mm -hmm. but Dune seems like it'd be a very difficult thing to adapt to the screen because it has been called unadaptable many times they said that with watchmen too i don't think anything is unadaptable i just think it's going to be extremely difficult and i think he can do it i just don't know how he's going to do it <laughs> i'm very curious yeah so there, there's some interesting things i found on the production of, of the 1984 dune one of the one of the things is at at one point in time they had 1700 people on the crew working to construct sets and you know not just on set crew but like the the pre-rigging for the building and all that they had up to up to 700 1700 people Christ on their crew at one point it was a year and a half of filming in Mexico City area the lead actor the guy who plays Paul was never in front of a camera before that this movie yeah you could kind of tell too he was a little <laughs> there's that one part where he's fighting that robot at the beginning and it just, it looks so awkward. And then after it was done, I'm like, okay, well, that was pretty much pointless. It showed that he could fight a robot and whatever, but. Well, it, it does, it does serve a purpose though, because later he, he just suddenly is a great fighter and you, you need to know why. Yeah. Just to the, a point yeah. like he can't just be a good fighter. No, but I mean, the execution of it was not very good. It was, it was too quick and it seemed like he, he got out of that thing without a scratch on him like it would have been nice to see him uh have a little bit of setback instead he's just i know he'd been training for a long time and his 
and his dad was the a duke right the duke yeah but still like the way they presented this thing (laughs) the other thing was too those those weird force fields that they have Mm -hmm. i got a lot of laughs out of this movie i'm gonna i'm gonna say right off the bat like that that effect i laughed my ass off the when i saw it i was just it made me think of minecraft (laughs) yeah it was just so sudden like it was patrick stewart (laughs) <laughs> which was awesome yes. and then all of a sudden they're like talking and then they're fighting all of a sudden i was like whoa whoa just slow down what just happened but that's that's the whole movie it's just nothing happens while people talk expositionally yeah and then everything happens all at once way too quickly and you can't figure out what's going on yeah totally it, the movie suffers very much from pacing problems mm-hmm. that stem from again the fact that they're trying to do too many things and when I first watched it, I I finished it and I was like, this is this is awful and I have no pity and I have a bad feeling that like I'm going to go into this review and just be scathing as we talk about this the whole time. And then I started listening to some interviews and stuff, like some interviews with David Lynch. When he first made the movie, he was talking about with these like grand ideas of how, of all these things he wanted to do with it and, and, and what he was ho- hoping the movie was going to be. And then I saw an interview of him like 20 years later when he's talking about this movie again. And the first words out of his mouth were, it was a nightmare. And the final quote of the interview was exactly this. That's the big lesson. Don't make a film if it can't be the film you want to make. It's a joke and a sick joke and it'll kill you. I, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it for sure. There are a lot of, not a lot, but I've, I've seen some behind the scenes stuff of people talking about how, like, as the movie went on, you could see he was breaking down, yeah, trying to make a good movie and realizing that it might not even be a good movie despite three years of work that he's put into it. And then he didn't even get control of the final cut. Yeah, that's what I heard. I also heard it was one of the first movies. I haven't confirmed this, but... I heard it was one of the first movies that he made, too. And it's a tragedy. It was his third movie. His third movie, okay. He had two big films before this, but they weren't big. They were successes. They were very successful films. It was Eraserhead and Elephant Man. Oh, okay. Were the two features that he made before this one. Eraserhead was hugely popular and very well received. And so was Elephant Man. But they're very different movies. And then he got approached by Dino De Laurentiis, who's apparently an uncredited executive producer, according to the IMDb page. Um, But he approached him, told him to read the book, and then asked him to make a movie out of it. And they kept talking about how much money this movie had, which it did. But then I also saw some people from the production of the film talking about I don't know who the person was. He didn't have a title card and they didn't say, but he was talking about how they never seemed to have enough money and that every time they went up against a problem or tried to do an effect, they never had enough money to make it look good. So they have all of these things that they were trying to do and that um, David Lynch had so many visions for how like the folding of space time would look and how all these different effects were going to play out on screen that would have looked fantastic if they'd had the budget for it, but they didn't, so they all ended up kind of falling flat, like all of the bad green screens yeah. that just don't look good because they didn't have the budget to do good effects. Well, there was, like, I, I was 
kind of excited about when they were about to do the 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 space travel with the spice and those weird fucking fish things the navigators the navigators called? the one that we see in the movie he is his title is the third navigator of the guild i believe okay but like when i watched that i was i was kind of expecting it to be a, at least a little cool but it just it just i don't know it was just weird maybe that was the intent it was supposed to be kind of quiet and kind of an odd experience which it was but it just it didn't really seem to do anything it just kind of it's like here look what we can do here's some special effects i think the intent was that it wasn't supposed to be anything like that but that was all they could do with what they had okay and that's fair See, that, what wasn't, I, that wasn't how he wanted it to look in the end. See, what I'm kind of wondering, though, is why doesn't David Lynch come back to do another Dune? Maybe a damaged Probably one. because this one did so badly that they wouldn't, like, they're, they're not going to give him another shot at it. Despite the fact that, like, you can see his passion for it and the fact that he, he really wanted to make it a good film, but he didn't have what it... what. It's one of those really sad sort of examples where somebody who for no real fault of their own, try their best to do something, and the restrictions put on them make it such that they can't do it properly, and then it fails, and then they're blamed for it. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. though it really isn't their fault. And it's not like his career ended after Dune. He had a very it long flourished. list. <laughs> but it could have and has often gone the other way with some of these types of situations. You know what this movie reminds me of, even though I haven't seen it, but I've seen pieces of it online, is that movie Battlefield Earth with fucking John Travolta. I haven't watched it. Have you heard of it? Yeah. yeah. I've uh, heard a lot of really um, interesting things. That's what it reminded me of. Like, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but just... The general, it, it kind of reminded me of Battlefield Earth mixed with the fifth element a little bit. See, my my thought when I finished it was a combination between Shakespeare and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay, I could see, I haven't seen Shakespeare, but I can definitely see 2001 A Space Odyssey. Y- you, you haven't, you know who Shakespeare is, right? No, Ryan, I don't know who Shakespeare is. I say Shakespeare because... Because of the fantasy elements and because of how theatrical the costuming is. Big time, yeah. They wear these, like, sort of Shakespearean-era poofy clothes that look like they you could walk out onto a, a London stage in, in the 1800s and be right at home. Yeah. And it's got these moments of really slow, beautiful, or what is meant to be beautiful, attempts at just introspective effects like the folding of space time reminded me a lot of the the warping from 2001 Mm. so i guess i feel bad that what ended up being created is not what the creator wanted and especially considering that what the creator wanted was so much more than what was ended up on screen what it needed was more movies. I, I don't normally say that, but you need more than two and a bit hours to to really tell the story, or you needed to tell less of the story. Focus on something and focus on telling that thing thoroughly instead of covering everything. Yeah. 
Like, they made some changes. Like, those those weirding modules that they carried around that they used aren't a thing in the books, apparently. Like, those voice things? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, they just use their powers. They don't have the modules. Oh, okay. But the weirding way became connected to those modules, and those modules being the all-important sort of part of it. But the weirding way is actually the power that the Bene Gesserit sisters use and have nothing to do with those tools at all. But they added them to try and... I don't know what they were trying to do, but they added them. It has so many... So many great things. The costuming, I, I will... I could go on forever about how great the set design is, how beautiful all the stuff they built was. It's just unfortunate that the, the pacing was so off that it was hard to enjoy those those parts yeah like those uh those what were they called those like i just call them the voice things what were those again the weirding modules yeah the weirding modules those were really awkward in the movie i found myself laughing a lot yeah seeing these grown-ass men going around saying cha cha (laughs) (laughs) uh the one i think one of the parts that got me just off guard was that guy's balloon suit how like when you first see him Oh god. The the set well the first off the set reminded me of Wizard of Oz. How like with all the green and everything, like I just thought of the Wizard of Oz when he's like, I am Oz. But then <laughs> after after he like pulled that kid's heart plug out or whatever it was, and then he just started or no, this was before he pulled the heart plug out, but then he he just started floating. Man, that guy, that villain was the best. I got probably the most laughs out of him because he just looked like he was having a blast. He's cartoonish and hilarious and really hyperbolic and not at all what he's supposed to be like in the book. Oh, okay, yeah, because there was another part in the movie when that that big guy, he was eating that cow tongue, that beef tongue, or whatever it was, and then he just, like, dug his fingers into his mouth. Oh, God. I was just like, who is this guy? This is awesome. This is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Like, imagine if you just, you were talking to somebody and you just started, like, screaming and just digging your fingers into their mouth while they were eating. (laughs) Who does that? That just seemed like something that was off the, like, just off the cuff. Like, I wonder what the other actor was, was thinking when he did that. I love that guy. And the wire work was actually pretty, pretty decent. I was actually looking at it, wondering how they, how they did that. I, it's true. They did a really good job with that flying effect. Yeah. Unfortunately, well, maybe not unfortunately. I, I really do appreciate that when people adapt things to a different medium and try and make it more appropriate to that medium or, or at the very least change things to make it more suitable to a slightly different story. I, I appreciate that as much as people get really ragey when movies don't match the book exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and changes have to be made regardless. They do. Um, and that character was one of the changes where in the books, he's apparently this just dark, brooding, super genius who is not funny and is not at crazy like he's portrayed, but rather like the emperor gets him into position and then he just he his machiavellian sort of tiered scheming and and political prowess and evil genius knowledge makes him super successful but he's not a crazy batshit like weirdo in the books right the other thing too uh the costumes uh 
I'm pr- I haven't actually confirmed this, but I'm almost certain the costumes were done by someone named Bob Ringwood. And I believe that he did uh, the bat suit for the 1989 Tim Burton Batman. Well, according to IMDb, he is the costume designer. Aha. Okay, good. I wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't crazy. I just. Batman Forever, Alien Resurrection, Star Trek Nemesis, Demolition Man, Batman Returns, Alien 3, Batman, Santa Claus the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was what he followed Dune with. He did Excalibur, Dune, then Santa Claus the movie. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, it works, man. Like whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I was even thinking too while I was watching this. Those black water suits that they wear, or whatever they are, the still suits. Yeah, those those uh, those suits looked a lot like the xenomorphs from Alien. They kind of did. Like, I mean, they're more balloony and they're less organic and whatever. But when I looked at them while they were flying the ship, I was like, those look a little bit like xenomorphs. That's cool. And not even knowing that he actually did the xenomorph suits now so that's kind of a you nailed it without even knowing it i like that i like the still suits a lot actually they were cool the only thing the only problem i had is that they're fucking black the the temperature on arrakis according to the movie (laughs) is uh where did i I wrote this down i actually looked it up because i was like i don't know the exact quantity or i don't know i looked it up so the average temperature is 350 degrees kelvin which is 76.9 degrees Celsius. Holy shit. And they're walking around uncovered in black suits in this beating heat underneath direct sunlight. Yeah, it's kind of weird that they don't have, like, at least something to cover their head. It's only on their body. You think that they'd have, like, at least a hat? I mean, they would be sunburned. I I might understand that you don't want to cover up the actors' faces and whatever, but... At least give them a hat or something. You know, they're covered head to toe anyways. Why wouldn't you get at least give them like, give them one of those straw hats to wear or something? Also, the the other thing I thought was kind of bizarre, which is just a side note, but why does the Duke carry a pug around? Okay, so that was literally the thing I was about to say as well. Oh, shit. <laughs> um, I don't know. I have no idea what the pug is about. The The pug was there. It came with them. To Arrakis from Kaladin. I don't know why. It doesn't seem to have a purpose. But my f- absolute favorite moment, I loved Patrick it so Stewart. much that I screenshotted it, is Patrick Stewart <laughs> screaming a battle cry and running into, yep. into war with a pug under his arm. Oh my god. For no fucking reason. And the, my, my other favorite Patrick Stewart part in that, besides the pug part, because that was mine too, but is when, when he, he sees Paul for the first time, he's like, his hair is all long and everything. He's like, Paul, is that, is that you? <laughs> like, where did he come from? Who were they fighting oh. at that point? Like there's this <laughs> montage of them running through the desert, shooting bullets at fucking who knows who. And then, Oh, good old Gurney just happens to be there for some reason. Oh man. Like, where did he go for the like years that they were off in the desert? Yeah. Cause they were in the desert for years. Yeah. That was the last you saw point. of them. And then it's just, Paul, is that you? <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> no, Patrick Stewart. What are you doing here? <laughs> the other thing too was Max von Cito. Yes. I was expecting to see him again, but he's just like, throw him out in the desert. And then you never saw him again. I was ex- <laughs> at least expecting to see him die. Or come back, but you, you just throw them out in the desert. You, you have to imagine that 
probably that was in the movie and it was something that got cut because he is a very prominent character in the books. Yeah, that's what I kind of figured because they got Max von Sydow to play him. I'm like, oh, he's in this too. And then all of a sudden he just gets his his little water tubes pulled and they just toss him out in the desert. Yep. And you never hear from him again. <laughs> and that's it. And it's it's like the Aaliyah girl too, Paul's sister. Yeah. She's meant to have a lot more important of a role because she's like the biggest abomination that could possibly be imagined in this universe. And yet she doesn't really play a part. And then we see her at the end, which apparently she was supposed to have been kidnapped. Which I didn't really get the impression that she was, but apparently yeah, she... it's kind of like she just showed up. Yeah, she was supposed to have been kidnapped for some reason, and she was just standing there while they watched stuff happen, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then he makes it rain, and then is like the worst line in the movie is the last line, which, for those of you who haven't seen it or don't know, it starts raining, and then she goes, And why? How can this be? For he is the Puisance Haderach or whatever. And it's like, why? Why? Why are you ending with that line of dialogue? I don't know. Just. I, mm. <laughs> I wonder if all those people standing out in the rain were actually the crew members. Just that oh, massive <laughs> mob of people. It's like, here, let's put, a, let's put all our crew members in here. And they're like, oh, my God, it's finally over. <laughs> Yay, we're done. <laughs> And that that isn't even in the movie I or in the in the original story either. Like he doesn't make it rain because the rain <laughs> would kill all of the sandworms. Imagine if he was actually like making it rain though, like with his hand as it was raining, flipping cash out of his. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they'll do that in the remake. I hope not. I hope so. I hope not. <laughs> make it That'd rain. Be awful. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's not even supposed to be there. It makes no sense and. I mean, it makes sense in the context of the movie. So I suppose I did say we were going to pretty much stick to talking about the movie for this because there's too much to there's too much to go to if we don't. Yeah. Um, the one thing that was cool, though, it was probably, in my opinion, one of the better special effects sequences or shots, I guess. But uh, it was when the worm swallowed that refinery. That was really cool. That was good. It looked like a practical effect. Oh, yeah. Sorry, a practical effect, not a So a special effect. effect rather than a yeah. visual effect. But it was really well done. You know, it comes up out of the ground and, like, clomps down on the spice refinery. The one thing also that drove me fucking nuts in this movie was that whispery voiceover. Like, that's where they were trying to make it too much like the book. Yeah. That, just that whispering, I found it a little hard to understand most of the time. As though they were worried people were going to, like, overhear them thinking to themselves or something. <laughs> what if they hear my thoughts? I, I understand why it's there for two reasons. I understand why it's there because nothing would fucking make sense if they didn't explain <laughs> some of it. Yeah. And I understand it because he was trying to make an accurate adaptation of the book. Mm -hmm. And the prose of the book is very, very introspective. More, like, obviously, all prose fiction allows you some access into characters' thoughts. But Dune does it a lot. There is a lot of writing out of characters' thoughts and their impressions of things. So they'll describe something, and then the next sentence of the description will be, like, the person's point of view, internal monologue on what they think of what they're looking at in very clear, like, he thought this thing about that or like saw this thing and thought about this like all the time yeah so he's trying to embody that sort of 
or it seems like he's trying to embody that sort of voice, but it doesn't work in film. No. You can't do that in a movie and not annoy the shit out of your audience, especially when every other thought is, is he the chosen one? Am I the chosen oh, one? That was... Is this the thing? Who is this person? <laughs> that, oh, Why is it, this happening? It was brutal. I was just like, oh, fucking spare me, please. Enough, enough. Yeah, I, I called them exposition avalanches in my notes. Just like this barrage of exposition constantly for the first three quarters of the movie. And then the last half an hour is just basically a montage of like years and years and years of yeah it was like a two-year battle oh it's even longer than that i think oh because in the movie it said it was two years anyway but we're at that point where it said it was two years you're right in the movie it's two years in the stories it's more than that because in the stories it's also it's not just on our axis this revolution of the fremen is happening on every planet Oh, that's cool. In the name of Paul Atreides, or sorry, Paul Muad'Dib, this great messiah who isn't even really a messiah, but it's cre- it's, it's created this galaxy-wide revolution in his name that's happening for years. The other thing I, I didn't like about that is there was no physical evolution of what the characters looked like over a certain amount of years going nope. through battle. Like, you think that Paul would at least have some some scars or something to show that he had been like, he's like a hardened warrior now. And he's like, he looks more like a leader would look in that circumstance, but he didn't look any different. That would make sense for a human, but he's not a human. He's a God in this movie. Oh yeah. That's, that's true. Yeah. And gods don't ever get hurt. Yeah. They don't even age. (laughs) No. Although he's not supposed to be a god. I don't even think his eyes got any bluer. They did. His eyes did get bluer. That did happen. Oh, well, I, I then it, that. It, it went past me then. It was, yeah, it wasn't permanent. I think at the end they, oh, now I can't remember. So I'm not going to say. <laughs> There's too I only much. watched it two days ago, but it was, yeah, my brain is too full of too many things. Yeah. Like Sting. Thank you, Sting, for being Sting and making everything better. Sting was in this? Yeah. Oh, who was he? He's Fade Routha. He's one of the two fucked up assassiny type guys that the Baron hires. Oh. There's the fat dude, and then there's a skinny dude in the blue speedo. That was Sting. Oh, no shit. Dude in the blue speedo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. When he walked out of that little chamber wearing those that, that fucking pair of underwear, I was like, man. And where I throws ne- his arms. <laughs> I was just like, where can I find a pair of underwear like that? I need those. <laughs> Imagine wearing those under a pair of jeans or something and look like you're wearing oh, a God. diaper or something. <laughs> you would feel so powerful, though. Oh, man. You know, they say people wear fancy, colorful, sexy underwear to make themselves feel better, even though nobody can see it. Well, this is what that is. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, actually, I think that underwear is probably part of his armor. Probably, actually, yeah. Yes, Sting was something else. And that was the most awkward, climactic battle I've ever seen. I did like the effect, though, where he shoved the knife up through his through the bottom of his chin. Yeah. I like like that. That was, that was good. I guess he's just like, I have to twist like the wind or some shit. And then he just kind of like rolls over awkwardly. And then just, again, it's that interruption of flow of narrative to give us a stream of consciousness thought that we don't need. Yeah. Just to try and be more like the book when you really shouldn't be. They were kind of like just pushing each other's weight most of the time. Like they were just kind of resting on each other a lot of the time. Like It wasn't a very well choreographed fight. No, 
it, which is unfortunate for the climactic battle between like these two what are supposed to be these two hyper characters yeah but even sting didn't i i can't even remember a time where sting and him actually met face to face in the movie they, i don't think they did yeah so what i the don't fuck? think they ever actually <laughs> exchanged words or anything they just yeah you know existed it's like i'm sting and i'm paul muadib the funny thing about that too is lynch didn't even want to cast sting it was suggested to him and he didn't want to do it because sting was a rock star and he's like i don't want to do deal with rock stars and whatever and then uh, apparently he saw sting's performance in a movie called uh, brimstone and trika which i've never seen or heard of it's apparently a british film that sting was in um and was just like this guy has to be fade there's no one else that could possibly fill this role and he said the same thing about paul atreides too apparently his casting process is he was looking for all of these different he was looking for like innocence but power but this but then he had like six different opposing ideas for how paul atreides was supposed to be this weird almost non-human character with all of these qualities that just don't mesh and he couldn't find anybody who could give him this strange character personality he was looking for except apparently in uh kyle mclaughlin so i don't i don't don't know i didn't think kyle mclaughlin was bad it was his first time in front of camera i thought he did pretty well with what he was given the the one thing too that was just like another little moment that kind of bugged me but i thought it was funny was you remember when that little needle thing came into his room oh the the what did they call that fuck the floating death assassin needle thing right <laughs> yeah yeah and he's like i gotta catch it so <laughs> don't I, move I, I liked uh so i think the thing tried to kill him he caught it before it killed that lady or whatever yes and then that afterwards, lady or you whatever see... her her character name she's actually really important apparently she seems like she'd be more important than she was shout out mapes okay so like after the assassination attempt his dad's sitting there and he's like they tried to murder my son it's like well thanks for telling us that <laughs> and there was that, that other part too where the thing actually got her where she was dying and then she's got like all this green shit coming out of her eyes and she can't breathe and everything he's like what happened i don't know it was just one of those things that made me laugh she's just like she's dying there right in front of him she's obviously like really fucked up and he's like what happened i don't know you tell me yeah it's an it's one of those like i don't want to call it a neil breen moment but do you know neil breen that's neil breen no 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 Oh, okay so that (laughs) scene the first one where he it almost gets uh shout out and he catches the thing that scene is like the first time that they fully realize that there's some because then she tells him afterwards oh you have a a traitor amongst Mm. your mitch which Mm. we've already figured out because there's this assassin thing in the castle and she's like be careful, they're trying to get you. And within five minutes, all the tension about that is gone because everything has happened in five minutes. Yeah. Maybe not five minutes exactly, but yeah, like... there's no build-up. A very short period of time. You're told that there's a traitor, which, I mean, we've suspected because Dr. Yui is kind of a suspicious character. He acts weird, and you're like, why mm. is he acting weird? That's mm-hmm. strange. And then they tell you, hey... There's a spy. And then five minutes later, they've already relieved the tension because war is broken out and everything's gone to shit in five minutes. Yeah. There's no transition. There's no flow. There's no buildup of that tension of yeah. trying to figure out who it is. He barely even tells any, has time to tell anybody that it's happening and he's already like, his dad's dead. Yeah. 
<laughs> the one, the other part that I found really funny too is when he bit down on that gas tooth. <laughs> the way he just like he spits it in the wrong person's face. Yeah, but just like what made me laugh was the way it happened. I wasn't expecting him to like blow it out like dragon breath. I was just kind of expecting <laughs> it to like subtly poison him or something. He's just like. <laughs> As I was watching, I got to a point. Normally, when I make notes. For these episodes, I generally write down themes and noticeable technical elements. I try and write down general ideas to talk about on like a grander scale in a way. And I started out doing that. I started out talking about the technical aspects and some of the things that were bothering me and some of the things that I thought were good. And it very quickly devolved to literally just writing questions Every time I had them. <laughs> yeah, I got a few questions in here. <laughs> like, every time a question popped up, I just... And I got more and more frustrating questions where I stopped even trying to, like... I just... It was messy, quick scrawls of question after question after question of why are they doing this? Why is this happening? Why is this like this? What is going on? What is happening? Who is this person? Why are they here? <laughs> what does that mean? I, I thought about making a segment of this podcast where I literally just went through and started <laughs> reading off those questions in order. Oh, okay. But the list got so long that I don't think I can even do that anymore. Well, if you could talk um, like the micro machines, man, you could do it. There you go. True. Uh, <laughs> I just, it's, I love it and I hate it and I understand it and I don't understand it and everything about the movie makes me want to dive more into this and actually get it because the more I look at it the more I see themes and ideas that are presented in the original books that just aren't even looked at because there isn't time that's that's one of the things that books have over movies that TV shows have over movies is that they have time to tell a whole story rather than squishing everything into two and a half hours or less. Yeah, basically, basically just having to dilute the whole thing in order for it to fit in a certain time frame yeah and not all of the problems are excusable no some of the acting I mean, there's is some, pretty atrocious there's some weird choices and transitions like the scene where he's looking down the binoculars and then there's just this weird black pattern transition that happens for some reason that like takes us yeah like near the end yeah yeah he's like it switches to his view through the binoculars by using this weird blocky transition white that doesn't yeah i remember that kind of messed with my eyes a little bit and it's never done again yeah and then it's never done again like i was i was really just kind of thrown off by that like most things in this movie <laughs> the one thing i was thinking of though near the end though was when uh, uh his sister walks in and there's that one psychic lady i can't remember what her name is she has like the silver teeth or whatever. And she's like, get out of my mind, child. <laughs> Stuff like that. <laughs> so that actually is supposed to make sense. And the scene in the book is more detailed than that. Because the idea, which is kind of presented in the movie, is that because her mother, the Lady Jessica, drank this water, water of truth, I believe it was called. Yeah. Which is, yeah. it's essentially just... 
like the distillation of spice into a drug. She ingests the drug and it damages her child. But the way it damages her is she's born with all of the knowledge and memories and history of all of her ancestors for all time. I, I didn't know that happened. So she's basically like, a, and they do, they do kind of briefly mention it in the movie. Um, so she's basically this prodigy child that knows everything. She can see all the future and all the past. And in the book, that scene is more expanded because she doesn't, she's not just get out of my mind. She's saying that literally this child is existing inside her brain as the creators, not, not the creators of her memory, but like she is also the ancestors of this reverend mother who i see so she's like exists within her because she knows all of her ancestors who have created all it's it's this really convoluted thing but basically it puts this this girl in this sort of godly omniscient position of knowing everything and being everywhere all at once yeah, she's kind of like one of those those old-fashioned phone operators, but in her brain. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> it's it's totally divisive in its tone. Everything about it makes me want to call it camp. But everything about it makes me want to take it seriously. Because it takes itself seriously, you know? Yeah, that's the problem. It's trying so hard to be a serious movie, but everything about it just feels like camp. And part of that is the is the costumes. Like you talk about, you talk, you mentioned the Fifth Element. There are like any there's there's so many sci-fi camp movies, and they use that same kind of excessive style that is almost Shakespearean, but in sci-fi. You know, like the the Egyptian design of all of their temples and castles and things that yeah. just feel so ancient and. That was one thing I really liked for the most part was the design of everything. It's just got that 80s analog semi Blade Runner in some points. Mm-hmm. I think everything looked pretty good. Like there were some times too where it also reminded me of that movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Not the remake, the original. Yeah, right? the original. Yeah. Like those, uh, the navigators. That kind of reminded me of something out of Total Recall for some reason. I think it was like that baby thing that came out of that guy's stomach. I don't know if you've ever seen it before. Um, I've, wa- <laughs> I've watched the remake, not the original, sadly. I've been meaning to watch the original oh, forever, and yeah. I just haven't done We're it. We're going to have to talk about the original. I will do that. <laughs> I would say there's only one part of the set design, production design area that I really felt could have been improved. Okay. So when Jessica and Paul are running from the worm and they dive into the rocks to hide, they're like in this crack and they're like pinned up and the worm hits the rock and this big chunk falls over and the chunk that Paul's on and he like slides off it and goes off. Oh yeah, that was, that part was really funny. The, (laughs) the rock that he's on, like it was really well built. It looked really good. And then it fell over and you could literally see the slide that they built into this thing so he could slide down it comfortably. It was this U-shaped slide that would, the only way it would have been formed is by somebody constantly sliding down it. Like I've seen it in caves before where there's these like little slides that have been formed from people scooching through tight spaces. Oh, okay. And water, but there was no way that it, and you don't see it when he's standing there. It's only in the set piece that falls over and it's so clearly visible 
that I immediately saw through the entire set and it took me right out of it. I was like, that's a slide. This whole thing is a <laughs> constructed piece of like foam and whatever else to make this rock. And now he's sliding down a slide. You've done so well everywhere else. I'm sure that that could have been made to look better because it was even a different color. Yeah. I mean, given the time constraints and, you know, probably all the pressure that everybody was under, I could probably give it a pass for that and kind of make up an excuse in my head for why that could be there. But still, like, it's one of those things. If it takes you out of the movie, it kind of kind of fucks you up a little bit. And I know the struggles of being in set design. I've worked on a lot of movies where, like, the production design department is understaffed and it's a run and there's so much to do and things are always changing. Yeah. I've had experiences like that with myself. Yeah. It's stressful and you're constantly getting changes and last minute stuff always has to be done. So I, I never, again, I never like to rip on other people's work. Even, even if it's kind of bad, I always just assume that there's a reason. And unless I know that somebody was just like, fuck it. But so I get it. But that part, it just it was so obviously yeah. standing out from the rest of the movie that it bothered me. One of the things that I'm I'm just kind of going through my head right now is one of the reasons I think people look at this movie without as much animosity as other movies. Like, look, I'm going to just I'm going to use the Rise of Skywalker as an example. All right. I'm ready for this. You can tell. And this this is just my kind of theory, but like you can tell that a lot of effort and not to say that, you know, Rise of Skywalker didn't have a lot of effort and stuff put into it. But the thing with Rise of Skywalker is it's more about making money and pleasing audiences, whereas this kind of stepped outside the box and tried to do something a little different that not and most people didn't like. But it's still it still acknowledges that it tried to do something different, whereas something like the rise of Skywalker was just kind of ticking boxes. It definitely was. Yeah. So I, I commend this movie for trying to do something different. Cause I think that's what a lot of, a lot of movies that I see nowadays lack in a lot of ways, not all of them, but quite a few of them. I, I would agree. They took a lot of risks with this movie. The first risk was trying to adapt Dune at all. And the second risk was trying to do it in one movie. And and trying to go full bore into what the story, what they interpreted the story to be, rather than trying to make it more digestible for the average audience. I can say now, too, that after watching the movie, I want to see what the book is about. You, I honestly, having read some of it, I think it's very much worth a read. The prose is good. It's well written. It's really even just like listening to some excerpts from the audiobooks. Like it's interesting to read. It's engaging. And I'm interested to see, like you said before, how Denis handles it. Because it has it's it began production last year. It's supposed to come out this year and on December 18th. Oh, really? I thought it was way yeah. farther off than that. December 18th, 2020 is the current release date. Cool. And they have Timothy Chalamet as Paul Atreides, Dave Bautista as Raban, Stellan Skarsgård is Baron Harkonnen, Rebecca Ferguson is Lady Jessica, and then Oscar Isaac is Duke Leto Atreides, and Josh Brolin is Gurney. 
Okay. So they have some really, really good cast members, and it's supposed to be two movies. So it's going to give more time to the story, and it's going to be a f- taken on by a filmmaker who knows really, really well how to build character and tell a visual story. If anything, from Blade Runner 2049 and from Arrival, I have a lot of confidence that Villeneuve is going to be able to do this in a way that is a lot more palatable in filmic form. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how it goes. I really want to come back to this when the movie comes out. Yeah. So in December of this year at some point, maybe the beginning of January next year, we'll do another episode. And hopefully by then I'll have read the book. Yeah, I'd really like to do that. I mean, I'm not going to say that automatically it's going to be better just because Denis Villeneuve directed it. But I think it's also because in a lot of ways, I think filmmaking has come a long way since 1984 in terms of, you know, the way that people can tell stories like this with visual effects. And knowing Denis Villeneuve, too, he'll probably have some practical effects in there as well and real sets. And I I think he's going to stick to that sort of aspect. Yeah. Our technology is is at a point where telling these kinds of stories is much easier and cheaper than it ever has been. With the right captain at the helm, which I believe they have, I think that there's a lot of... I have a lot of hope for the upcoming adaptation. But yeah, I think there's there's so much heart to the movie that I... I could watch the whole thing and despite all of the problems and despite all of the frustrations and lack of understanding and all of these things, the heart of the movie and the people behind it that made it is so strong that it makes it okay. It, Yeah, it has a certain charm to it. Yeah, yeah like, sure. it, it, it's they tried, they put everything into it, they made a thing, they had everything stacked against them, but they did it anyways, and I commend them for it, and I commend them for being passionate about it and trying their best, and it shows. I think it was, in its own way, a pretty enjoyable movie. Like, I didn't hate it. I thought it was really goofy and it was really confusing, but at least I got some laughs out of it and it's got some good things to look at as well. And Dune is definitely an anomaly of the eighties. <laughs> and I think in, in filmmaking in general, it's, it's such a weird sort of balance that it walks, I guess, with being extremely confusing and annoying and funny and, everything but it's i i don't know i think that in its own right is a victory you know the fact that it got made at all i think is a victory they 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 made it it failed but i mean people like us are still talking about it today so i mean i would say that's a win well there you go so that was that was dune thank you guys so much for listening we really appreciate it as always, there are spoilers, um, especially in this one, because we're talking about the stuff in the books, we're talking about stuff in the movies, and we're just kind of going. 
And if it feels nonsensical and disorganized and like a little bit confused, it's because that's what the movie is. And so it's just, <laughs> we just have to try and interpret what we've been given. Um, but we do spoil some of it. So if you don't want spoilers or you want to experience this piece of beautiful cinema for yourself, then watch it first before you come and watch this episode. And we will be back to Dune probably next year because I really am excited about this next one. I'm actually really excited about it now, too. Having seen the original, I might even try to get get at least one of the books read by the time that comes out. So maybe I'll have a bit of backstory in case the new one is just as confusing as the old one. Well, there you go. I've got a compilation that has like, I think the first three books and some appendices with world information. So I'm going to try and read through all that. Nice. And uh, it's a, it's a quite a beautiful edition. It looks really nice. Good hardcover. Well-designed. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into it now. We'll come at you with something next week. We haven't decided what the next one's going to be yet. Well, I, I, I have a little hint on what it could be. Ooh, let's hear it. If we'll be back for Dune, we'll be back next episode. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> or should I say, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Now you've just given it away. <laughs> yeah. Well, not to everybody. Very true. Until next time, thank you guys so much again for listening, and we will catch you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.